Hey, I'm Eric Torenberg, and welcome to another episode of Maker Stories, where we explore what makes the makers, what drives them, what they're scared of, how they make sense of the world, and everything in between. This week's episode is with Ezra Klein. Ezra is a political journalist and founder of one of the most interesting media platforms today, Vox Media. Our talk was so good, I had to break it down into two episodes. In this first episode, we cover Ezra's start in journalism, how he transitioned from journalist to manager of over 50, and then we get into the future of news media platforms and what it will mean to be a journalist in the future. Ezra is one of the few who gets politics and gets tech. I enjoyed my chat with him, and I think you will too. All right, here's Ezra. Hey, everybody. I'm Eric Tornberg with the Product Tech Podcast, and today we are sitting with Ezra Klein of Vox. Hello. Ezra has come <laughs> all the way to the prestigious offices, uh, prestigious studio of uh, Product Hunt in San Francisco just for this podcast. Thank you for, for flying out in your helicopter to make this. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited that you have this whiteboard with like all future plans for Product oh, yeah. Hunt here. I feel like the amount of kind of blueprint intelligence exactly. I'm getting. Like, I know everything that's going to happen on oh, Product yeah. Hunt for five years. Exclusive. Yeah, very uh, exciting. Yeah, I really should have made you sign an NDA or something. Yeah, you it's really all, should have. It's all, it's all it's gonna, Snapchat it's now. It's going to be a box exclusive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, perfect. Um, so here's what I, I want to start from, start from the beginning. So you started blogging in 2003. Yeah. You were 19 years old. No, I was 18, I 18. think. So yeah. blogging wasn't really a thing. No. <laughs> so what motivated you to start blogging in 2003? Um, so I read blogs. I mean, to, to a first approximation, I read blogs. And in particular, I read a blog by this college kid named Matthew Iglesias, mm-hmm. who was like this kind of inhumanly like smart, but also prolific blogger. I mean, back then, Matt, who's a co-founder of mine now at Vox, uh, but back then Matt would post easily 25 times a day. Mm. And I definitely couldn't do that, but I figured, look, if this college kid can, can blog, I can, I can do it. And, or at least I can try it. And um, so I just started one up. I was on blogger.com at the time. And... I just began writing, and I'm not proud particularly of what I wrote back then, but it was a great way to learn writing. I mean, I was at college. I was a freshman. Mm-hmm. I was bored. Were you like was, a super uh, intellectually precocious No. I was, like, I was in some ways the opposite. I was a total high school fuck up. Really? Yeah. Like, I graduated high school with a 2.2 average. What were you doing? Um, it, it's not one of these things where like, oh, I was smart and I was bored. I, I was really bad at, um, I was really undisciplined. Uh-huh. And I was really bad at doing homework. Uh, I did a lot of reading. And I was really bad. It's really interesting. It may not be really interesting. I shouldn't say it that way. But it was an interesting revelation for me years later. I am incredibly, incredibly bad. To the the point that it almost feels like a defect. At sitting in a room and listening to someone lecture. Oh, yes. To this day. Like, I can't do, as a journalist, I can't do teleconference calls, right? Mm -hmm. I can't call into something and hear somebody talk on the phone for 30 minutes and then they open it up to Q&A and get anything out of it. I will completely, without meaning to, tune out. And in the culture, there is this kind of culturally received message Mm -hmm. that everybody is always tuning that shit out, right? (laughs) That everybody is always daydreaming and doodling and Mm -hmm. thinking about something else in class, right? If you think about any television representation of a kid in high school, like they're always like throwing a paper airplane or some shit. And so I thought that I was like everyone else in completely not paying 
completely not being able to pay attention. But everyone's like acing exams. Everybody else was actually paying attention. And it was only years later as I got into, like I've always been good at absorbing um, material through written word, right? I'm, right. A, I'm a good and, and, and uh, I'm a good and happy reader. I learn a lot through conversation. I come mm -hmm. very quickly in conversation, in argument. Um, but that was something that really didn't work for me. And so for a lot of different reasons, um, I was just really bad at school. And, you know, I think that people who knew me thought I was like, smart and a huge underachiever yeah. but it was not i wasn't some kind of precocious intellectual like i didn't go around quoting Kant or something yeah and, and looking back you know a decade later after, after school do you think that school is just not designed for you in some way and that school should be you know like ex be uh, more accepting of different learning styles redesign I don't, I don't take um big normative lessons over the fact that i didn't do well in in high school i'm not sure high school should be should cater to me being you know yeah. um, being undisciplined and having trouble paying attention. Uh, you know what I will say is that it's made me very respectful of the power of context in people's lives. Mm -hmm. That you know I did really badly across by the way a variety of dimensions right Bad, badly socially yeah. badly academically was not happy. In, in high school. Were you and like in a band or like, no. did you have another outlet? I had nothing. <laughs> what like, did you do? I, uh, later on I discovered, um, okay. it, later on I discovered uh, pot and that was yeah. helpful for a while and <laughs> then I started getting anxiety attacks yeah. and that went away too. Um, I, had, I had a couple, particularly later in, in high school, I had a couple really good friends who I'm still very close with today. So I, I give them all the credit in the world. I have a very wonderful and supportive family. But it wasn't, I was. I played sports, I was yeah. a wrestler and a football player, I was not good at either one. <laughs> I didn't do band, I didn't do newspaper, yeah. I didn't do, I mean really, I was genu a truly, your not prospects, your undistinguished your, kid. Your prospects were grim. Uh, yeah, they were. Um, but then, you know, I got in this other context, I did pretty well in college, although again there I didn't really pay attention either. Where'd it just, I went to UC Santa Cruz yeah. uh, for two years and then UCLA for one. And, you know, that was something where you could do a lot more reading and write an essay and, and do well based on that. I did okay. I wasn't, I didn't blow the doors off the place. But, you know, I found blogging. And all of a sudden, I went from someone whose most kind of singularly defining characteristic was that I did not work hard. To all of a sudden, I worked incredibly hard. I worked bizarrely hard. I woke up at 7 a.m. I wrote 15 posts a day. And it just clicked with me. And it wasn't that I was not a hard worker, full stop. It's that... There were certain contexts in which the ways I could learn and the ways I could work really uh, worked for me, and there were certain contexts in which they really didn't. And if I had not found the context in which they did, I have absolutely no confidence that my life would have turned out particularly well. I'm, I'm, I have a very real appreciation for the fact that I am someone who can fail repeatedly and for a very, very long time and get into a very deep hole. And what was it about blogging that, that became that focus for you? How did how did it? I don't know. I I really I, I did blogging totally as a lark. Um, I got rejected from the Santa Cruz student newspaper, which <laughs> I applied to. Um, so I said, "Well, fuck it. I'll do I'll do a blog." And it was just a really interesting community, particularly back then. I mean, this was two thousand and three, and blogging was just getting off the ground. And you get links from all mm -hmm. the big bloggers. I mean, I remember the first time I got a, a Matt Iglesias link really early, which was sweet. But it took me a long time. I think it took me a year to get my first Kevin Drum link. Mm -hmm. Like that. That yeah. was a real. That was a real hill to climb. Andrew Sullivan came. I think even after that. And. But somehow, just the I, I, I before that, I always loved to read. I was very into politics, and this is just a way for me to think through 
the think through these ideas. And one of the really great things about blogging back then, but also one of the great things about blogging as an unknown 18-year-old, was that it didn't, I wasn't doing it to be right, if that makes any sense. I mean, now I worry a lot about being wrong, or at least, you know, I worry a lot about doing work that I don't think is up to a high enough quality mm -hmm. standard, right? Yep. Spouting off about things I don't really know about. I mean, I feel that my work carries now a certain kind of, you know, carries the Box brand, yep. and before that, the Washington Post brand, and there's a set of strictures on that. But here it was fine to just be part of a conversation. It was fine to just be considering ideas and maybe somebody had not just thought of that idea before but somebody else completely debunked it. And that was okay. Somebody would just link you to the debunking and then you would mm -hmm. learn something that day. And it was just incredibly fun and you could just flip from thing to thing to thing very fast as your interests kind of dictated right. to you. So, you know, maybe one week you, you know, I just one week decided to write about this healthcare proposal that the Center for American Progress, which is back then a very young think tank, had put out. And that led to me getting interested in international healthcare systems, which led to me developing real interest in healthcare policy, which was, I think, in many ways, a foundation of my career. Yeah. And there was no, uh, nothing came before that. There was no reason I was interested in healthcare. I had not shown an aptitude or interest in the subject before. It just came up. I got to try it out. And then when I decided to I wanted to go deeper, I could, and there was nobody there to tell me no, nobody yeah. there to, to say, no, that's ridiculous, there are experts in this already. And so I was able to build up over time um, expertise and both just follow my, my own obsessions, which was incredibly, incredibly fun. And, you know, back then, the, the idea that a thousand, ten thousand yeah. people were reading your work, and this was, you know, back when I was writing papers for one professor, right. it was incredibly electric. And imagine if you'd never found blogging. Imagine. <laughs> you know, and it makes me question why you don't have any kind of uh, normative beliefs. Because I, I also didn't think about how school should be. I also didn't do very well in school. But the person I am, I, I complain and say, school should have been designed differently. Maybe you're just a different person. Um, but it makes me think, like, you know, imagine if you didn't find it. Like, you know, how could... Yeah. I, I th so, right, I completely could have just yeah. ended up, I, I think I could have ended up going to law school and being a total failure at that, right? <laughs> not being able to listen to law professors, right? Like not being able to do the work and uh, I really think it could have been a disaster. We're a special breed, people who can't listen and need to do their own thing. But, you know, the reason I don't take big normative um, lessons from it, I, like look, like obviously I would like the world to conform to my personal preferences, that would be <laughs> ideal for sure. Exactly. But, um, I don't know that my particular set of um, strengths and weaknesses is common. Right. And I don't know how you create a school system that is amazing for everyone. And I just think, I think we have a lot of problems in the educational system, but I think the problem of smart kids who are kind of undisciplined and for whatever reason have a lot of trouble listening in class is not really in my top <laughs> 10. Like if right. I'm going to start solving problems, I think you have a lot of problems uh, that are much more serious than any of the ones right. I did. And, and I think it's very easy to design towards the problems of people who have a lot of voice in the system, yep. uh, and a lot harder sometimes to design to the problems of people who don't have a lot of voice. So that's like, a huge critique of Silicon Valley in general. Of course, yeah. So I mean, we're having this conversation, and, my, and as you say, like yep. this is something that maybe you share, yep. and my guess is there are a lot of people who, um, you know... Uh, an unusual percentage of people who get to go on podcasts who have this particular schooling yeah. experience, but that doesn't convince me it's a, it's a major problem in American education in general. Right. 
So I know you're probably not a fan of uh, Peter Thiel's 20 under 20. No, I mean, that is an interesting small scale idea. Uh, you know, I don't, my point that I don't think this is a huge problem that requires American educational redesign yeah. doesn't mean that, you know, I don't wish there, I, I wouldn't enjoy or I don't enjoy small bespoke solutions yeah. for people who can find them. I mean, I think you, you know, you want, it's right. a big world out there. You want all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think I would have had a lot of fun if Peter Thiel's yeah. 20 under 20. Yeah. Um, maybe it can become 40 under 40. And if Peter Thiel wants to fund that, that's yeah. fantastic. Right. Um, I just don't, I, you know, I would not tell the Department of Education to begin working on that immediately right. that if, makes if, sense. I were, if I were Arnie Duncan. If you, uh, so, you know, you're 19, 18 years old, blogging, you know, you're starting to get a bit of an audience. Uh, did you think that you could do this as a job? You know, what did you think you were going to do after college? The idea that anyone thought they could do blogging as a job in 2003, <laughs> I, it, it I mean, it, it's ridiculous. Like back then, even saying the word blogging, it, right. it's a really unfortunate name, right? It has a, um, like when you think of other things that begin with a blah sound, mm -hmm. they're not good usually. Like blah, blarg, like yeah. it's not good. And... Um, yeah, I mean, the idea that it would ever become a profession was ridiculous. And I also didn't intend to be a journalist. Um, that was not one of the things that I considered myself to be interested in. It wasn't something I was targeting towards. I thought I enjoyed writing, and so I wanted to join the school paper for a bit. But, you know, it was very late in the game. It was after a lot of people around me thought had come to me and, and said, you should think about being a journalist, that um, I finally began to think, like, oh, maybe, maybe there is something there for me. Uh, what I was lucky, what I was incredibly lucky about, and and really like so much of my particular path is just one really lucky break after another, is that at that exact moment, what you began to have happen is publications that were fairly small, that because they were fairly small, recognized they needed to somehow have an answer to this thing, blogging, that was beginning to get a fair amount of attention. What they were willing to do was accept blogging as a credential um, for getting a more traditional apprenticeship. So I, my first job in journalism, so my first uh, internship was at the Washington Monthly, which was an incredibly great experience. Um, and that came because I knew people, like people at the Washington Monthly read my blog, yep. right? And I just absolutely love that. It's a great, 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 you know, story publication. Um, then I got the, the American Prospect Writing Fellowship and the American Prospect did it, had a fellowship for a number of years. It's a two-year program. Uh, back then, they paid very, very, very little. But what it did was it taught you how to do you know, magazine journals. And the American Prospect was a small policy magazine uh, based in Washington, D.C., and, and still is. And um, what was different was that typically they would have taken someone for that fellowship who had been editor of a school newspaper or somehow or another had been really academically distinguished. And all of a sudden, they were willing to take a flyer on these bloggers. And so what I had was this kind of combination of having started a blog at the right time to get noticed as a, as a young blogger, but also I was a college student. And so I could reorient my career and take advantage of what was not an opportunity that would have worked for somebody with two kids, yep. right? If you were a um, college professor who was mm -hmm. blogging, the fact that the American Prospect would have paid you, I think it was 21500 to come, you know, learn the craft of journalism, uh, and then you know, may, maybe, maybe be hired on, maybe not, is not 
is not good enough, right? right? And so I had a lot of freedom at that point and being paid, you know, a not very uh, high wage is a lot better than paying grad school yeah. uh, a, very, a very large amount of money or taking a, lot, a large number of student loans to learn something else. So it was very, very unexpected. It was a very, very happy set of coincidences. Um, you know, but what it did was it got me into a kind of training program where I didn't just get to keep blogging, but I actually got to learn the tools of journalism, right? I, got, I learned how to report, I learned how to structure a magazine article, yeah. structure a larger piece. I learned how to get sourced up. I, I just, I learned a lot of things that blogging on its own couldn't have taught me. Yeah, and what do you think, you know, journalism, blogging, what, uh, and now, you know, now Vox, we'll get to that, but what do you think ties your interests together? Is it the d diversity of intellectual interests, and then you able to explore that? And, uh, tell stories about it. Like, what do you think is the crux of what what motivates you tying all these the story together? So as a, I don't know if I have a good answer to that, to be honest. Um, as a journalist, what interests me is policy and, and the ways it's made. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm, I'm interested in other topics too. I'm interested in, in business and, and economics and, you know, quite a bit else. But I'm very interested in structures and institutions and how they drive outcomes. And my topic tends to be Washington and American politics. And within that, the structures and institutions are oriented primarily towards driving policy outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the, those are machines I really enjoy learning about. And to some degree, I think what ties other, some of the other things here together, and particularly a lot of the moves I've made in media, is it media is a set of institutions, media is a structure, media is a big machine, and I've always been really interested in trying to understand its different parts, how they work together, and, and where the thing was going. And so, you know, I've always, from, from pretty early on with blogging, and a lot of the early blogs here was founded to some degree on a critique of certain parts of the media, right, a critique that came out of the way the media was oriented. Uh, you know, in the early years of, of the Iraq War and the War on Terror, but also how it was oriented more broadly, sort of he said, she said reporting and the kind of uh, what Jay Rosen calls the view from nowhere kind of thing. Uh, a lot of these things I think the media has now, by the way, responded to, you know, really well. I think there's a lot less of it around. But, I, you know, from pretty early on, I was very interested in how the media worked, why it worked the way it did, and what kind of outcomes that created. And I think at a lot of different points in my career, I've been... You know, I've had, um, I've been pretty good at and have had the good fortune to, to be in a place to try to say, okay, I think this is where the machine is going to go next. I think this is kind of the next opportunity that technology and culture and talent and, you know, um, and, and the stories that are going to dominate, this is probably the next opportunity that's going to, that's going to come along. And so I think... And did you see that with Vox? I mean, you spent yeah. you know, a bunch of years at the Washington Post. Did you always know you wanted to start your own media company yeah. or was it something you saw? And, you know, talk, take us through the path. What did you see? So, um, so I'll, I'll go a little bit back. Um, the American Prospect is a really interesting and usual place because it is a policy magazine. And so what I learned to do there, um, and it's something I had a pre-existing interest in, but it was a place where I learned uh, a lot of skills related to it, was how to report about policy in a way that would be readable to people. Um, I went to the Washington Post, which is, which was and is a just unbelievably incredible place. And I started there just kind of having my own blog that was based on domestic and economic policy, and I covered things like Obamacare very, very intensely. And, and what I did with that, or what I think I did with that, and it was really important to what came next, was I showed, and by the way, other people showed, it wasn't just me by any means, that there was a really big audience for this kind of coverage. And that this kind of coverage 
which was often thought of as having a kind of lower ceiling in terms of what kind of traffic you could get for it, coverage of things like healthcare and the economy and the Federal Reserve. Actually, that ceiling was much higher than people had understood. It was, but the audience was held back by different things. It was held back, I think, by some of the compromises you had to make in print um, in terms of space and being able to explain what was going on. So you lost a lot of readers by shorthanding complicated topics. It was held back by oftentimes um, the way the stories were allowed to come out. In policy particularly, I think it's really hard to be clear if you can't tell people what you think the right answer is. I think it's really hard to walk people through a complicated debate but then not um, say, and in my view, having you know gone through right. the evidence, here's what I think the, the answer is, even if you might yep. disagree. Um, you know, and so that that actually worked out really well, and I had a blog that, that was really high performing um, within the post. You know, then uh, you know what I recognized was just that there was a, and this wasn't you know by any means a great leap of imagination, was that there was just a lot of stories that I was really sure would work for my audience that I wasn't able to cover, just because I was didn't have the time. So that created one blog, right, mm -hmm. where I hired a, a bunch of great people, a number of whom are still with me at Vox, uh, which I am so deeply grateful for. Um, but people like Sarah Cliff and Brad Plumer and um, Dylan Matthews and mm -hmm. Susie Kim and uh, Neil Irwin and Lydia DePillis, who, who uh, were elsewhere, and Susie is at the, the New Republic. Um, and so created, you know, what was then one of the very few places on the internet that was just devoted to deep dives on domestic and economic policy. And, you know, that was, you know, a, a very kind of logical next step. And then, you know, but it was something that I learned when I was just on my own. I, I learned there was an audience and I learned seeing what stories worked, that there were more stories that worked than I could actually cover. Then what I learned at Wonkblog was that we were failing the audience. Um, and, and we were failing it particularly in this way. We did a fantastic job day in and day out. And I really believe this. I'm incredibly proud of what we did there. But we did a really good job day in and day out answering the question of what happened today in Obamacare or what happened today in the financial crisis. But when I looked at reader email, when I talked to people who read the site, that was very rarely the question they were actually asking, right? They wanted to know things that were much more fundamental. What was Obamacare? How did the subsidies work? And we had covered that stuff. We knew the answers. We had learned the bill. We had read the bill. We had you know, done all the work. And oftentimes the answer was already on this site somewhere. But it was completely, uh, it was very, very hard to match the answer with the people who needed it. Unless you had incredibly good Google Foo, getting that context was really difficult. And if you couldn't get that context, if I, if I couldn't tell you kind of how the subsidies work and what mm -hmm. Obamacare fundamentally was, then it was really hard for you to become a fan of the site, right? It was really hard for you, not knowing anything about Obamacare, to come into the coverage eight months in, which is probably when you began paying attention anyway, right. and sort of know what the hell we were talking about. And hence about. the card system to explain, you know. So Vox was based on the idea that, you know, that the obvious next step for journalism, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and, and I think the big realization I have is that it didn't have to be this way, but there was a reason it had happened this way. The print, it's fundamental, Tyler Cohen, who yeah. you've had um, on the show, on the podcast, uh, he has a good line in his book, How to Think Like an Economist, and he says that the fundamental thing you need to do to think like an economist is to think, is to ask yourself, what is the relevant scarcity in any given situation? And the relevant scarcity in print was pages, right? Mm -hmm. You only had 64 or 32 pages in a magazine, yep. you only had X amount of pages in a newspaper. 
And so the whole game of print, or a lot of the game of print, was how do you pack the most information into the minimum amount of space? The web had no problem like that, right? The web, you could publish the entire, uh, you know, the entire text of War and Peace at 10 in the morning, and then 52 more blog posts in the day, and there was no problem whatsoever. And so all of a sudden, we were still writing things in, in a way that was optimized for this sort of very tough compromises of print, these compromises where you couldn't give people the information they needed to understand the story. You kind of, you kind of put the onus on them to understand what had happened before that day. But online, we didn't need to do that. And so the question like became, okay, like if you reimagine what the value of a journalist is, if you don't see the value as the article they produced today, but as the knowledge base they've been building through every article they've produced, how do you make that knowledge base more accessible to the audience? How do you take what they've built? How do you take what they've figured out? How do you take what they've understood? How do you take all that context that allows them to absorb the new information and put it in a usable framework and unearth that and make it available to the audience whenever they may need it? Mm. And so the, the, the core idea of Vox was about taking marrying this kind of editorial problem with a series of you know technological solutions and workflow solutions, you called it. Uh, it was called New York Times meets Wikipedia or something. Um, I don't know if I called it that. Or New York Times called it that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we thought about it a lot as you know being simultaneously a competitor to um, established news organizations, but in a very real way, competitor to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. You know, we definitely want to be a place where when a um, a story breaks, right? Um, you know, at, at the moment we're talking, there's a story about a militia face-off in Oregon, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I don't know when this comes out, but it may not be important by then. But, you know, I think we have a better explainer on that than right. Wikipedia does. I think we are better at figuring out what's going on there than Wikipedia is. And it doesn't mean Wikipedia is not an amazing marvel of human yeah. achievement, but, but I think that in our small slice of information, we, we can beat Wikipedia. And so thinking about how to, how to you know, really compete in that space too, that creates all kinds of questions of distribution, of workflow. It's incredibly fucking hard, like really, really, really hard. I thought it was going to be hard when we started. Right. I mean, it's even harder than that by, by orders of magnitude. But it's also something we've seen a lot of success with. And I think the reason is that fundamentally the, the argument was correct. People did need this service. And we did have the technology, or at least the beginnings of the technology, to provide it both in terms of making it a doable task for the, the journalist and also making it uh, matchable with the people who needed it. And do you think you guys are doing a good job marrying both the technolo- technolo- uh, technology and media components? Uh, I do. Um, I think something people really underestimate here is how few problems are purely technological. And, you know, this is something we thought a lot about before we started, but something that, you know, every day since is really drilled into me. But, you know, I think there can be an idea that what's going to happen is you're going to build some beautiful piece of software. You know, Vox Media has this proprietary publishing system called Chorus, and Chorus has a lot of amazing things to it. But sometimes I'll read the coverage and, you know, it'll be as if, like, you know, we turn on the Chorus button and all of our problems are solved. You know, a tremendous amount of workflow is, uh, in any industry, is a series of compromises with the technology you're on, right? How a journalist does their job is really driven by the rhythms of how do you publish a print newspaper or print magazine. That's true today. And by the way, it's true in a lot of the technology. A lot of the technology is built, people looked at the traditional journalistic workflow, they built online publishing technologies that matched the traditional journalistic workflow. And so now the technology um, pushes you, even though you don't need to be 
you know, on the traditional journalistic workflow into that into that space. That's, by the way, also true of distribution. If you go to Facebook and you, it's great that on the internet we can re-update articles a bunch of times, but if you try to share an article on Facebook twice in two days, even if 85% of it has changed, um, it penalizes you. Right. So there too, there's a kind of bias towards, you know, every day we put out an edition and then we throw it away and we rewrite the stories tomorrow and maybe 80% right. of that story is similar, but, you know, but, but we've created a new edition. And so the thing that, that we are trying to figure out and the thing that, you know, hopefully to some extent we have uh, at least made progress on figuring out is not just like how do you build the technology, but how do you get the staff into a workflow? Because it is a lot of upfront investment. It's a huge pain in the ass to write these explainers, to keep them updated. How do you build a workflow? How do you build the culture? How do you build the incentives internally? How do you, you know, build the distribution? to you know, get everything into a sort of feedback loop where people want to do this, where they're excited to do this, and where it really works for the audience. The technology is definitely part of it. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a genuinely necessary part of it. Like You can't do this if you don't get the publishing system you know, pretty close to right. But I would say that you know, getting, solving the software problem is like 20 to 30% right. of the battle. Talk about the transition for, for you from being a journalist to uh, you know, a manager, 50 plus people. Um, it is a hell of a transition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I was uh, a manager at the post, so mm-hmm. I ran, you know, like six to eight people, depending on how you looked at it. And I really enjoyed that. Um, the thing that has been really interesting to me at Vox, uh, is that I'd say like every time you kind of double or triple in size so far for us, and we're about 50 some now and we're, we're going up quick and, and hiring is hiring is fucking yeah. hard. <laughs> Um, if you're awesome and you want a job at Vox, go to voxmedia.com. Yes. Uh, we got a jobs page there and we are, we are looking for you. Um, the job really changes, uh, with every sort of, you know, 15 or 20 people we add. Mm-hmm. So when I was running, you know, five to eight people, and then even when I'd say I was running like up to 15 to 20, 25 people, the job was really an assignment and editing job, right? Uh, so the way I manage a site was by really having my hands on the stories we published, you know, really gave people a lot of direct feedback on, on how they were doing. Then you get bigger and you can't do that anymore, and so now you're managing through managers. You are having to think a lot about communication, about culture, about how do other people have a sense of, you know, the organization's mission and its values, and so they're able to make decisions on their own without you reaching over them and without you kind of, you know getting into their, you know, getting in their way, like, how do you back off and let people think of things that, that you would never be able to think of, um, you know, on your own? It's a, you know, I am, I'm, I'm still able to do a certain amount of my own writing. I probably write, you know, three, four or five things a week still, uh, but I'm not able to do as much of my own reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not able to spend as much time reading and absorbing information, which really makes me worry that, you know, over two or three years or over five or 10 years as, the political scene changes and my, you know, sourcing degrades, right? Right now, a lot of the people I've known for a number of years when I was doing the reporting and writing full-time, I'm, I'm still able to call up very easily. But, you know, you have an administration changeover, you have the issues changeover, and all of a sudden I won't know who to call and I won't have been putting in the time to, to rebuild those connections. So I worry about my own journalism over time. But in terms of becoming a manager, it's just, a, you know, I found it to be a really fascinating, really absorbing, obsessing, stressful, hard interesting job, but also a job that, that changes on you very, very fast. I feel mm-hmm. like I've kind of had to reinvent my, my management style every six months. And, 
you know, and, and the one thing I would just say is that it's a job you really have to, in my, in my view anyway, you just really have to take it seriously. Um, I think there can be a lure that, you know, you can do something like this and you can outsource management to other people or, you know, you'll really be able to primarily be a writer and a journalist and, you know, you'll kind of just manage on the side or everybody will get it. And, you know, just like the bigger you get, the more the more opportunities are coming up, the more problems you're having. Do you wish you can go you back have to, to writing? Sorry? Do you wish that you can go back to writing more? Um, I don't wish I could stop doing Weird. management. Yeah. You know, I wish that I had 55 hours a day. Yeah. Um, but I don't... Uh, Man, intellectually interesting in a different way. Yeah, very much. Um, you know, and... and the thing that makes it worth it, right, is, you know, the, it, it would not, it is a less fun job on an hour-to-hour -hour basis in writing, right? If you had me fill out a time diary, yeah. I do not enjoy meetings as much as I enjoyed spending six hours reporting right. and writing out a piece, right? Like, that was really fun, like, uh, on the moment-to-moment -moment basis. But what's really cool is, like, the things you can build, right? Um, and the things that can emerge out of the management and, and honestly the most sort of rewarding fun part of management is when things happen and you, that are great and you're proud of and you didn't have a huge hand in them. Mm. So, you know, to, to give one example, I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of what um, the box teams created on Snapchat Discover. Mm -hmm. I just think it's really game changing. You know, I think it is really something different and new and exciting. It's beautiful, it's thoughtful. I don't think anybody on Snapchat had been doing it before us. And, you know, I really don't take much credit for it. Uh, mm -hmm. Like really, basically none at all. That was something that Allison Rocky and Yvonne Lau and, and Matt Moore and, and others involved in that team did. And, you know, seeing that happen, like seeing them take, you know, the sort of mission and sort of values and competencies of Vox and then reinterpret it into something genuinely new that I never could have done. Like that was really one of my like yeah. great proud moments as a manager. When you're hiring journalists, how do you, what, what are some key things that you look for when you're when evaluating them and how good they can be? Um, I really look for... I think there are a couple of schools of thought here, but the thing that I really look for is obsessive interest in their subject. So if you give me a choice between two people, and one has, is pretty talented at the sort of fundamental journalistic skill set, right? They're, they you know reported on a lot of topics, are good at structuring a story, um, but you know they're, they're not that into the topic. Um, you know they don't have they've not they've not kind of demonstrated deep knowledge of what they want to be reporting on. And then you show me someone who is a good writer, but maybe doesn't have that kind of journalistic background, but does love their topic, and really is, is deep in it, is the kind of person who, like, if you didn't hire them to do this job, they right. would just be obsessively writing about this stuff on the internet, on internet comment sites yeah. free. <laughs> um, I'll take that second person. Right. I found that, you know, I found that you can teach journalism. You can't teach that kind of Hustle. obsessive deep love of a subject. And it's that kind of core motivation for learning about your subject and, and meeting the people in it and hearing about it and thinking about it 24-7 that ends up creating really great explanatory work. And how do you, when, when you have that hustle but you don't have the, the kind of sort of experience, how do you train them? Uh, do, is it just putting them in the ring of fire? And, and no, I mean, we have, you know, hopefully we have um, <laughs> editors and, you yeah. know, other writers and, and ways of doing things and formats. I mean, we have depending on what work people need, we have a lot of both people and resources that help get people you know, up to speed. 
But, you know, oftentimes people have been doing things that are pretty close to journalism already. I think that, yeah. that journalism sometimes can pretend that what it is doing is more distinct than what it actually is. I mean, so if you take somebody who's been doing academic work, right. and, you know, they've been doing, uh, you know, papers in which they do kind of anthropological interviews with 55 of the key people in the field, yeah. and then they write, I mean, that, that's different, right? How you structure that is different. You know, the abstract question is different. You know, there, there's definitely differences, but they've actually been reporting, right? Yeah. They've been structuring things of considerable length. They've been thinking about what is my point and how do I convey it clearly. Um, you know, lawyers have a lot of the same, you know, a, a lot of the same work. You know, we've hired people from a lot of different unusual backgrounds and a lot of them have worked out yeah. really, really well. And it's not that they don't need some, some training and help, but that, you know, the fundamental work of journalism is learning about things and then communicating your learnings clearly to people. Mm -hmm. um, and may, maybe I'll add one more, right? The fundamental work of journalism is framing interesting questions, learning the answers, and then communicating those answers. And, you know, you can do that um, in investigative journalism. You can do that in ways that are, are meant to really uh, hold the powerful to account. You can do that in ways that are meant to really expose uh, inequities in society and the way people live. You can do that in ways that are just supposed to help people live better lives, yep. right? Help them live healthier, happier lives. I mean, there are all different kinds of ways it goes. But, you know, fundamentally, I think that is the skill set you need to be able to develop. And I think a lot of different people are able to develop it. Mm -hmm. And do you think, you know, I know you think a lot about future media. Um, you know, you just mentioned Snapchat. Like, what, what you know, and I'll frame that while also saying, you know, 10 years ago, or in 2003, you you know, blogging wasn't the traditional path to journalism. Now, you know, more or less everyone's you know blogging or showcasing their work in some some capacity. In you know, five years from now, what are journalists? Are they going to have to have the same skill set? Are they going to have to have other skills in addition? You know, what's that going to look like? I don't think the fundamental skill set of the journalist has changed all that much. It has changed a bit, and I think that we are emphasizing different kinds of journalists than we were maybe 20 years ago. I think there is, for instance, a lot more uh, value placed on the ability to do clear, solid, analytical writing than there was, you know, 20 years ago when that kind of writing was reserved for, you know, a very, very small select. But also, but also being prolific and being able to being prolific matters. But there voice. were a lot of prolific right. people 20 years ago. I mean, you know, you you had wire reporters, you yeah. had daily reporters who were in the paper every day. I mean. You go back and look at someone like David Broder and the kind of work he was churning out. And being prolific is not something that we invented in 2005. Right. But being able to also promote uh, via Twitter and other I don't networks. believe that that's a very important skill. Gotcha. Um, I think that the ability to, you know, quote unquote, promote your work through your personal Twitter account and your personal Facebook account is... And be your own brand, be your own community. I don't think, I, I don't think that stuff matters. I think those are... But I think those are... Distractions, or I, I'm trying to think of what I to say. I think those are ideas that quickly lost relevance as these areas professionalized. So, like maybe you know, very early in Twitter, there was a real value to like getting journalists to like really focus on the platform. Now, I think that it is probably at least as much distraction as it is mm -hmm. as it is positive. Um, you know, I think that it is, you know, assuming you're a journalist at a large institution or an institution with some kind of traction uh, within the, the major distributional platforms, it's my job to promote your work, mm -hmm. right? It's my job to make sure that if you come to Vox, 
and you're just out of college, right? And you have no social media presence at all, basically, right? You're followed by whatever, 312 people on Twitter. Um, that, it, But you write a great story, that that story is seen by a million people. Right. And we do do that. If you, I think that if you look at our, you know, I, I do not think you would see a very clear relationship between Twitter followers and traffic. No. Uh, I don't think that, I mean, I think you'd see some because, you know, some of our high profile people are, are obviously very prolific and are, are very well read. But I don't think you would look at that and see that as a primary determinant. I think that um, it is becoming really important that you write work that does well on yeah. Twitter, or on Facebook, and, and which is to say you write work that can find an audience. Yeah. Um, or, by the way, produce it visually or create videos or whatever, right? Um, I think one thing that is definitely happening is journalism is becoming less confined to, particularly news, um, less confined uh, to, you know, here are your print groups, here are your video groups, here are your... But I don't... I think that the really important work there is creating, you know, great content, whatever form yeah. it may be in. The distribution is increasingly a specialized task. Right. So you think the content and the quality stays the same? more or less, in fact, just the mediums in which it's distributed and uh, the channels. Yeah, and I think that, I think there are going to be new forms invented that people are going to have to be good at. Snapchat being one of them. Um, You know, video is not a new form, right? We had cable news before we had, you know, Twitter. Um, But I do think we're going to see, I think that when you you go back and you kind of like relook at this from sort of technological, um, uh, from a sort of like structuralist technological standpoint, You'd say, okay, one reason that journalism is so text-heavy is that it was really cheap to print text right. for a very long time, black and white text. Mm-hmm. It was only like really much later that printing in color became affordable, and it was only much later than that that there were even a reasonable number of opportunities to create moving pictures that people could watch, right? Mm-hmm. There were only so many channels, reasonably few of them did news. So I think that journalism evolved in a way where if we evolved on the current set of technologies, like if we were a industry invented right now, we'd be a lot less text heavy. Yeah. We would have a lot more information being conveyed through visuals, through um, moving images, yeah. through things like you know podcasts like this one. And I think we're, we're increasingly going in that direction. So I do think that there's going to be a higher and higher premium on, you know, Particularly visual journalists, that'll be a big that'll be a big deal going forward. Um, you know, and I think that in a in a bigger way, this sort of I think a little bit above the level of the individual journalist and more at the sort of publication level. But I think that within probably within three years for big publishers, um, I think certainly if it's not already happened for us, certainly within a year or two, and five years for pretty much everybody, a majority of the audience is going to be off-platform, right? It's not going to be coming to your website. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm talking digitally. There are yeah. print publications that have a different mix. But I think that between Facebook Instant Articles, Google AMP, Snapchat, YouTube, Facebook Video, um, you know, keep going down the list, yeah. right? Flipboard, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the number of people who are consuming our journalism on a platform that isn't ours is going to be, you know, significantly more than a majority, right? And that's going to create a lot of changes. I think some of them are good, particularly in terms of audience scale, and I think some of them are bad in terms of when you can't control the experience, it really, and you have to go through, you know, and, and you've got to be able to pump your content through five different kinds of publishing systems. I think it really limits how much you can innovate 
in terms of what you're doing for the audience, right? If I create a really great annotation system on Vox.com, well, maybe Facebook Instant Articles can't support it, and maybe Google right. AMP can't support it, and Face and Snapchat can't support it. So now I just created something that only a, a small fraction of my audience can see, right. and what's the point of putting a lot of work into that? Mm-hmm. So I think there are going to be a lot of issues like that that are going to come up. But I think that at the publication level, you're going to have to get really good at um, not just building publishing technologies and make it pretty seamless to publish out into a lot of different formats, but because a lot of these formats are going to be different, right? I can't put the article I put on Facebook Instant Articles mm-hmm. and the video I put on YouTube cannot obviously be the same piece of content. You're going to have to get really good at reinterpreting your mission and your content across a lot of different platforms to reach different kinds of audiences that want to consume different kinds of information. And right. I think a lot of the kind of big spoils are going to go to the publications that can do that really well. BuzzFeed. Uh, Box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, when you think about, you know, Felix Salmon, you know, uh, uh, maybe six months ago, maybe a year ago, wrote this article, Don't Be a Journalist. Um, when you think about advice, and it was basically saying that the power goes to the people who own the platform, when you think, uh, and less to the writer, when you think about advice to young journalists, uh, are you also advising them to have enough business skills where they can, you know, uh, build or own the platform that they, you know, want to write on as well? Or No. Um, Felix is a friend of mine. I like him a lot. I think he's a very smart guy. I thought that article was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Felix was a great counterexample to that article. I ended up writing uh, a response to it. Um, If you search my name and advice for journalists, Mm -hmm. you'll you'll find it. and It's my my best advice, and it's very different than Felix's. But there are different... There's a different rhythm and and different set of issues in different parts of journalism. And um, I think it is really becoming a lot harder to be sort of a local journalist in a mid-city metropolitan uh, daily, right? If you want to cover Baltimore and and make a middle-class living at that, that's become really difficult in ways that are are really upsetting. Um, Being a pretty strong digital journalist, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity in it. I can tell you, as someone who's hiring a lot of them, it's a tight labor market. The salaries are real. They're adult salaries. I mean, it's not like we're... I can't hire anybody for $21,500. Right. And, um, uh, you know, as I was at the American Prospect. And I think that there has, you know, simultaneously there are, you know, again, I don't want to diminish this. I think it's really hard to be a, you know, a print journalist at a certain kind of paper with a certain set of skills. Yeah. I also think it's a really great moment to be a, you know, a 29-year-old journalist, you know, or a 35-year-old journalist with great digital skills who is, you know, really good at covering a subject area. Yeah. I think that there is a tremendous amount uh, of need for, for that kind of writer. And, you know, one thing that I think has really happened is that it's become, one thing that you have seen within, you know, the, the industry generally is as in terms of percentage of content consumed, people are reading much more national and international and a lot less sort of local and regional. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there is a very, very, very hot market for, you know, tech journalists who are writing about where tech is going for everybody, right? right. You know, if you're, if you're a really good tech journalist right now, you can come in at a tremendous salary. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think that, you know, and similarly, political journalists, you know, if you're a really strong political journalist right now, you know, again, like, being somebody who's hiring in that market, you know, yeah. the salaries are gone tremendously up in the time I've been working there. I mean, 
you know, to things that, you know, I never imagined when I came in in 2005. Six figures. Yeah. And and for six figures for, you know, um, six figures is definitely like, I thought like you, like that would be like the absolute top, right? right? If like you could one day hit a hundred thousand dollars as a political journalist, you know, when I, when I got to this industry, I thought that would be like unimaginable, Right. right? Like maybe at 50, I would do that or something. And, um, you know, you don't come out of college and do that, right? Yeah. And it's a hard thing to do. But, you know, it, it's, you know, there are people making a serious, you know, making making serious incomes in this area now. Doesn't mean there are endless numbers of that, right. but there yeah. aren't all that many industries where there are endless numbers of people right. making huge salaries. But but so I've been, it, it really is a tight labor market. And if you are able to kind of prove yourself as one of the people who is really good at it, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. And also, and I think this is important, I think it's something that, you know, Felix Yolanda played. There's now the opportunity to prove that you're one of those really yeah. good people. You know, if you were going 20 years ago or, or 30 years ago, you had to spend a tremendous amount of time being bigfooted out of important stories, kind of, you know, paying your dues at, at city councils. And I mean, people can argue whether that was a better system or not. Yeah. But it definitely is possible now to come onto the scene and very quickly, you know, show your stuff, very quickly show that, like, you are a voice on these issues that people should be listening to, that they want to be listening to, that publications want to have in their stable, in a way that before it was actually a lot harder to demonstrate that kind of talent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you really think you're good at this, if you really think that, you know, you have something to say and you have the work ethic to do it and, and you're willing to, you know, learn the, the skills you don't have, I don't think there's ever been a time when, I, I don't think there have been that many times when the, uh, when the possibilities were greater, yeah, which I think you know, I think for certainly for young people should be should be exciting. Yeah, and also last year there was this blow up uh, about the New Republic in terms of Chris Hughes, the Facebook founder, uh, you know, firing one of you know a few writers um, and everything. And with that, I bring that up to kind of illustrated the uh, difference between old media and new media and the way that they communicate. Do you think that they are now you know understanding each other better that? Old media is adapting. I don't think that did illustrate the difference between old media and new media. I think that was a very complicated, very personal upheaval. Mm-hmm. I think the new look. The, the New Republic has changed editors many, many times. It is. It has a long and storied history of firing people unceremoniously and cruelly. Uh, it is a tremendous publication, still doing a lot of great work today, um, although it lost a lot of tremendous talent in that upheaval. But I don't think that was a new media, old media gotcha. thing. Um, a lot of places, as they made this transition, have fired more editors than that and undergone, frankly, more wrenching upheavals than in, in terms of how sharply they were changing what they did. Mm-hmm. I think that was a management failure. I think that was a tough unbelievable clusterfuck of communications, right? Mm-hmm. Like how um, the leadership of the New Republic communicated what was going on to the staff, how they communicated what was going on to the editor, you know, how the staff responded. It, it, it just, it shouldn't have gone into that place. And in a lot of other places, it, it hasn't gone into that place. Um, a lot of other places have seen, you know, a lot of editors yeah. uh, pushed out. Um, a lot of other places have seen, you know, the New Republic was not trying to fire half of its staff, but a lot of places have fired right. and done buyouts of tremendous quantities of the staff, right? It, it's been grueling. When I got to the Washington Post, there were their fourth round of buyouts. Mm-hmm. And I rode the elevator like the, like a week or two after I got there. 
and I read the elevator, and so let me back up in the story for a minute. And you would hear, um, like when you were there at that time, sort of like a bell ring, like all the time, like four times a day. And then a bunch of people would gather in some corner of the room, and then there'd be speeches and clapping and cake, and like some other great journals would be leaving. And I remember uh, being in the elevator with one of the managing editors, and who had, who had been one of the people who you know interviewed me, and sort of nervously joking that uh, they go through a lot of cake there at the Washington Post. And he said to me, and I verified this later, that he said, yeah, like, we actually had to cut the cake budget recently. <laughs> and I was like, well, fuck me. <laughs> like, yeah. this was not a good industry to get into. Um, there's been a lot of wrenching change in journalism. And what happened at the New Republic, I don't think was a digital upheaval. I think gotcha. it was a management problem. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a really sad thing that happened there. And I know a lot of people on both sides of that fight, and I'm right. not really taking a side in that. Um, but I just, I think it's kind of a shame all around. But as you think about the future of media, does more power go to, you know, the Voxes, the Buzzfeeds, the Vices? Like yeah, Vox just, yeah. <laughs> it just absorbs, absorbs, absorbs power, becomes a kind of monopoly player. But, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of these older public, you know, um, don't understand the internet as well, or don't understand, like, you know, some of them are funded by kind of scions and, you know, wealthy families and haven't had to, like, make, make you know, make profits in that, in that way, like the New Yorker perhaps. How do you, like, where do you see, you know, people like them going? So I think there are a lot of different, and, and happened for a very long time, a lot of different business models in journalism and a lot of different kinds of success. So it's not the first time that new uh, entrants are becoming important. Uh, using a, you know, using different business models. Bloomberg um, was not a major player in news, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, they're obviously a very big player yep. in news now, right? They are sustained by a terminal business. They are not looking to be profitable in their news division, at least to my knowledge, mm -hmm. as the sort of primary driver of it. Um, and that started kind of before, you know, Fox Media's and so forth. So that, you know, the idea that you have different people coming in is not that new. Um, you know, I think that the world is actually still pretty good for a lot of the really big prestige players. Um, I think your New York Times, your Washington Post, I mean, they have been dominant forces in American journalism for a long time, and they'll continue to be dominant forces in American journalism. Has it, and it's, has it done well, do you like how it's Washington Post has done since Bezos? Yeah, I think they've done incredible things since Bezos has been there. I think that the, like the management team, you know, Marty Barron and, and, and Emilio and, and Kevin Merida just left and, and went to, I think it's to ESPN, but, I think they've done really, really tremendous things with the digital transition there. And I think Bezos has been incredibly good for the organization, but they, they really were able to create an internally entrepreneurial culture. I don't think Wonkblog could have taken root in the way it did at any other, basically, newsroom, I think, in the country. And I think that, uh, you know, I think you can't look at that and not be, you know, really uh, excited about what is, you know, possible for these players. I think the legacy new media thing is really broken down. I think there are, you know, again, quote unquote, legacy organizations that in certain parts of themselves are more innovative than a lot of new media players. I think mm -hmm. there are new media players that at times have more traditional operations and legacy uh, than some of the big legacy players. Uh, so that kind of new media, old media thing where it signifies an understanding of the internet, I think was very relevant five or six years ago mm -hmm. and is, you know, not totally irrelevant now, but is, is much less relevant. And particularly when you're talking about those kinds of best in class players. But I do think there's a lot of opportunity right now in the media. I do think there's a land grab. I think you're losing a lot of, um, and, and you've seen a, uh, diminishment of a lot of kind of 
folks like just below that New York Times, Washington Post level, like really yeah. great journalistic institutions that weren't quite at that last man standing, you know, uh, winner take all place. And so I do think there's been a lot of opportunity for your Vox Media's, your BuzzFeed's. Yeah. I, I think Vice is really interesting, although in a little bit of a different category, right? Like I think their primary business yeah. is television, yeah. um, which is a great business to be in. Um, and, you know, and I, I do think we're in a space right now where you're seeing the formation of kind of, you know, or, you know, to some degree, I hope we are, um, where you're seeing the formation of some of the really major media brands of, of the next generation. And it doesn't mean the next generation is only, the next generation's major media brands will only be these new players, right? I think that's something people really get wrong. I think the New York Times is going to be very important for 50 years yeah. from now. Um, but I do think, you know, some of the, some of the big digital upstarts that have been able to, you know, make a big land grab, make a big traffic audience grab, and now have absorbed a lot of great, really respected journalists are um, are in a really good position. I do think, by the way, just to, to focus on that point for one more second, this is something people really skip over pretty quickly when they start talking about old media, new media. When new media gets big enough, what it begins to do is buy old media. Right, there are a lot of very prestigious journalists who work for very prestigious older media or organizations who work at Vox Media, who work at BuzzFeed, who work at um, I think Mike just brought yeah. in uh, I think an executive editor from NPR, uh, you know, Business Insider has some really good great people at it. You can really kind of go down this list and, and begin, you know, actually like looking into where people are coming from. And we're now all in competition for the same talent. Yep. And people are, are moving sort of without a second thought from a place like, you know, um, obviously a lot of people at Vox came from the Washington Post, including me. Uh, but, you know, I've seen New York Times people go to BuzzFeed. I've seen BuzzFeed people go to, uh, you know, the New York Times. It, it kind of, you know, there's a tremendous amount, there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of porousness. In, in this area now. I've seen courts people go to the Wall Street right. Journal. I've seen, you know, people from the Wall Street Journal go to, you know, name your place. And so, you know, in terms of what it means for some of these players to emerge, it isn't, I think, as different right. the end product as people initially thought, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I might have this wrong, but I, if I'm not wrong, I think Miriam Elder, who's a foreign policy lead at, at BuzzFeed, if I'm not wrong, came from The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so the idea that you have a big player with a foreign policy team led yeah. by a Guardian editor, like it's not, when you right. frame it like that, it doesn't sound right. quite as much as of a revolution, which I think is good, right? I mean, these are tremendously talented journalists. Is there any other, is, is there a revolution you see in the media world happening in the next five years? Yeah, I think this, I think the platform stuff is going to be a really big deal. Uh, I think it's going to be a really big deal in terms of what we do, in terms of what we can do. Is Snapchat the big? big no, I, I think it's I think it's one of many, right? I think it's going to be. I think we're going to get a lot more fractured in how we reach our audiences. And and one thing it, that I think is going to be different here is that um, media, the big media players, are going to exist in big ways on more platforms than they did before. I think that it it was unusual to have, you know, a player previously who was really big on TV and really big in print. Yeah. Um, not saying it never happened, but I'm actually even just having a little bit of trouble thinking of one offhand. But mm. but the audience will probably think of a bunch immediately and mm-hmm. write immediately to tell me. <laughs> but um, but I think that we're we're, we're going to be in a place where it's going to be pretty normal that you're going to have big players on television who are also big players and kind of printing words on the internet. Right. And I think the kinds of skills that we'll select for will be pretty different. 
I also think that in terms of how we just do the day-to-day -day work of journalism, how reader-focused we are, how much we know what the audience wants to hear about, how much um, we care about what the audience wants to hear about, those things have been really overhauled, like in very, very big ways. You know, there's this kind of continuous conversation online now about the degree to which, uh, you know, quote-unquote identity politics dominate in, you know, a lot of, you know, you look at what did the best on Facebook in right. a month, you're going to see a lot of things that touch on people's identities. And, you know, one way of looking at that is, you know, to kind of like shake your fist and bemoan the rise of political correctness and, you know. But what's happening here is that for a very long time, the decisions about what led the news were made by, uh, you know, older white men, right? right? Like, that's who decided what went on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times or what led the news on, on CNN. And, and in many cases, by the way, that's still true. But there just wasn't that much information about what the audience wanted. And now we've seen, you know, we're very attuned to we now being kind of like editors and, 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 and people sort of in this business, we're very attuned to what is happening on social media. One thing social media has taught us, right, this is basically the fundamental lesson of that a lot of people have taken from social, it's the fundamental insight of BuzzFeed, yeah. is that identity-oriented coverage really blows up, I'm sorry, identity-oriented content really blows up online, that people, um, particularly in a world where they can share it and it can, it can develop a new audience maybe that is not like the audience you usually have, uh, how much people uh, cared about stories that touched on these aspects of their lives was, you know, more significant than, uh, than people realize, you know, there's, Folks who are frustrated with this trend like to make fun of this idea of microaggressions yeah. and all the coverage of things that, that microaggressions get. But I think there's a really powerful lesson in the fact that people who experience these these issues, yeah. these microaggressions, feel so strongly about them that they want to spend so much time sharing them, discussing them, reading about them online. And so one thing that I think is really happening is that we are it is changing what the media cares about and what it covers. And it's changing it in a way that is much more connected to what the audience cares about and what the audience wants covered. And I'm not saying that doesn't lead to excesses. I'm not saying that doesn't ever lead to important stories getting short shrift. I'm not saying it doesn't uh, lead to, you know, dumb coverage sometimes or coverage is based on trying to make people feel outraged or trying to make people feel, uh, um, you know, sort of happy and, and inspired. But I do think it's better than what came before it. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I do think You're it's optimistic. a really seismic change in journalism that we have this really good sense of what kinds of stories do people feel really affect their lives as opposed to just what kinds of stories have we decided affect their lives. I don't for a minute believe that the set of topics we had judged serious topics, right, tax policy yep. instead of police brutality against the African-American community I don't for a second think we had the weights on that right. Mm -hmm. So you think journalism has gotten better and will continue to get better? I do. Um, I think there's more crap out there than there ever has been too, mm -hmm. right? I think there's just more of, of everything out there. But if you want to read great journalism now, my God, you this is like the fucking greatest moment in history. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go to longreads.com, longform, yep. you know, and, and, and see the best work from every publication, you know, that, that basically exists. There's just amazing stuff happening. And you have, and people have access to all of it and, you know, they have ways of following all of it and it gets delivered to them. And we spend so much fucking time now right. trying to invent new technologies to get you exactly what you want when you want it. And yes, like, 
you know, you can, there are filter bubble problems there. You right. know, there are all kinds of issues of less spontaneous discovery. But I think a lot of those, compared to the gain to people who want to be informed, yeah. a lot of those are, are pretty marginal. Now, like, I do take very seriously the echo chamber problems. I mean, right. I, I do think that stuff is very real. But, my God, like, the problem used to be that you couldn't find out about things that happened at all. Right. And I, I just, I think we spend way too little time on some level appreciating, you know, what we now have access to. Right. Do you ever fear that with all the information, you know, all the kind of different companies kind of pandering to uh, what people will most likely click or share, that it sort of like junk food rises above kind of the good stuff that's not as instantly digestible? Or is that know. a false choice? I don't know what this wonderful era was yeah. that people seem to think of where everybody spent their time reading budget coverage. <laughs> I, I really I really just don't. Um, look, there's always been uh, junk food. You know, there's all... Like, France has always been more popular than the American prospect. Right. Like, it just has always been true. <laughs> and I... I think that the nature of the junk food has probably changed a little bit. And, and, you know, certainly, like, there are months when I look at, you know, what is dominated for us on social. And, you know, I think those were not literally our five best stories. Yeah. Maybe it's two of our best stories and, you know, three that were, you know, okay. Um, but <laughs> newspapers literally print. And this is a line from my colleague Matthew Bases, but newspapers literally print a part of the newspaper that people often turn to first, where based on your birthday, the newspaper <laughs> will lie to you about what happened that day. Like, and that is an honor tradition in newspapers, yeah. lying to you about your future because of when you were born. Right. There are comics pages. Yeah. Like, I, I genuinely don't know what this era of super seriousness, where people didn't, on average, prefer somewhat lighter content was. And my hunch, although I don't have hard data on this, is that, one, the junk food is often a gateway drug, right? Mm -hmm. The junk food is often, you know, you start reading stuff that is, you know, adjacent to right. better coverage, and eventually you're involved in better coverage. Um, and two, I don't, uh, you know, and two, I think that it's that kind of junk food, you know, if you look at something like Facebook, yeah. I think... Um, news-adjacent junk food is probably replacing non-news-adjacent junk food, right? I think that there was a sharper delineation when you were watching television between stuff made to entertain you, right. stuff made really with the audience in mind, and nightly news programming, right? I think the nightly news programming is very serious, and then I think you could watch, you know, whatever, Oprah or whatever it might be. And I think that something we've created are a lot of bridges. I think that we've created um, a lot of kinds of content that will help you learn about the world, but in a way that is a little bit easier to get started with. You know, this also, you know, to talk my book here for a second, goes to some of the theories of Vox. I think that something where we are able to do at Vox is give people the, the information, the contextual information that if they're coming into a story midstream, they can actually figure out what the hell we're talking about, decide if they're interested, and then continue following it. And I think we lost a lot of the audience before because people would, would care enough to come in. They would care enough to kind of turn on the news or open the newspaper, but then they would be made to feel stupid. 
They right. wouldn't know what the jargon meant. They wouldn't know who the players were. And there's nothing people hate more than feeling stupid. It's such a fucking terrible feeling to be made right. to feel stupid. It's always been a very searing experience for me. I, I really got into the news after, you know, around and after 9-11. And I remember just feeling like I only understood like 45 or 55% of every news article. Mm -hmm. That, you know, they would talk about Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle say. And I just didn't have really any associations with what that meant, right? I didn't really know anything about Tom Daschle. I didn't really know that. I mean, you know, whatever. I've taken high school civics, yeah. right? Yeah. But I didn't really know that much about the Senate. I didn't know really what a majority leader did. Like, even something as simple as that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot encoded when they mention something Tom Daschle did. A lot right. that, a lot of information you were supposed to bring to that. Mm -hmm. And I was never bringing any of that information. So I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And, and I cared enough at that point, right? Because it was a very tumultuous moment in American history to, to keep going. And then whatever, after three or four months, I understood 65%. And mm -hmm. you know, as time went on, I understood more and more. But the idea that we can take someone and not make them go through that now, I think just has to mean we have a lot more conversion. Right. And you mentioned, you know, New York Times still being around 50 years. And I can kind of get in my head a picture of what the New York Times will look like. But when I, when you think about the future of Vox, uh, and you think about, you know, what does success look like, you know, for Vox when you think about the future of it and, and for you personally? Complete world. <laughs> You're ready to hear first. Um, what does success look like for us? You know, Vox's mission is actually, I think, pretty simple. We want to explain the news. And I know a lot of my, my colleagues in the media get frustrated at that and, and feel they're, they're already explaining the news, but I, I don't think the media, and on many days, I don't even think Vox does a good enough job making the news explicable to people, taking the stories we're writing and, and, and that we care about giving people the, the resources so they can really understand them. And I want Vox across a lot of different platforms in a lot of different ways to be the place when, you know, something begins happening that, that people feel really confident they can go and get an explanation on their level. I think I want people on YouTube to feel, you know, with something like, um, you know, uh, the, the Greek debt crisis happens, that they can feel really confident that they go to youtube.com slash Vox, they're gonna get a really great explanation of what's going on there, such that they're not gonna be made to feel stupid anymore, such that now they can follow all the other coverage. I want somebody on Snapchat to be confident that you know when they open up Vox and Snapchat Discover, they are going to learn a little bit about the world that's gonna make learning more about the world easier for them. You know, I want people to come to our website and really feel confident that, you know, when some bizarre militia in Oregon has taken over some tiny pocket of land and they're hearing their friends talk about it and, and now they're seeing a lot of like what Ted Cruz said and that they can come to us and, and we're going to be there for them. And, you know, I want us to get better at that. I want us to get, I want us to get faster. I want us to get more comprehensive. You know, that on some level means hiring more resources, but also being, you know, better about executing. But I, I really want Vox to be a place that provides a service for people. And I want it to be a place that provides a service for people that kind of meets them where they are. I think that too often in journalism we have had this kind of attitude that you need to come to us. Mm -hmm. That you know, we'll write stories about the budget and we'll write stories about Syria. But on some level this is fucking serious business and it's for serious people and you kind of have to do the work and come to us. And you know, I want to be a place where if you 
are willing to meet us halfway. If you've decided to take time out of your life to learn about this, that's good enough. Like we are going to find something for you. Like mm-hmm. whether it's a visual, whether it's an in one sentence explainer, whether it's charts and maps, we do explainers for the same topic in like 14 different yeah. formats oftentimes. And the reason is that different people need something different. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, they're all going to learn the information from a card stack or they're all going to learn it from, you know, a, a detailed news article. I, I don't think it's correct. So to me, you know, success would really be when, you know, a large percentage of the population, um, feel, you know, feels they can turn to us for that. Right. And routinely does. And how about you for your kind of personal, you know, obviously so young, you know, but for your personal legacy, like what do you want to achieve as a writer and journalist and entrepreneur? That, that's what I want to achieve, to be honest. Um, you know, look, I've got my own, my own journalism, but I don't think, at least right now, that you know my great contribution is going to be my individual writing. Mm-hmm. I think, hopefully, you know things go well. Uh, you know, maybe it will be in the future, right? You don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. But um, but when I think about like what I'm trying to achieve, what I'm trying to achieve is, is through a box. It isn't yeah. through me. It's not going to be under my name.